This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining in today on the Future of Cybercrime podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Itai Maor, Senior Director, Security Strategy at Cato Networks. He's got a fantastic background in the discipline of cyber threat intelligence. I'll give you some of it. Atai is the Senior Director, yes, of Security Strategy at Cato Networks, but he's also an industry-recognized cybersecurity researcher. Prior to his role with Cato Networks, where he's at currently, he led an entire strategic cybersecurity research and security service. He has also held various security positions at IBM, where he actually created and led breach response training and security research. And he's also been at RSA Security Cyber Threats Research Labs. So already we're going to have a great conversation, I think, about research intelligence as well as building a good team. Not only is Itai very well-versed in his profession as per serving with organizations, but also he's an adjunct professor at Boston College and is a part of the Call for Papers Committee for the RSA Conference. So we have somebody who is very research-oriented in all regards, it seems. Itai, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I always say to listeners, I give an all right introduction into folks' backgrounds and what they do, but it's always better coming from the source. Can you tell everyone a little more about yourself, your background, and what you do currently at Cato Networks? Sure. So I think you covered most of what I did in my, well, 20 years career, I guess. Um focusing mostly on cybersecurity, underground intelligence, malware research, phishing, you name it, we've done it. Today, I'm the Senior Director of Security Strategy at Cato Networks. We're there as well. I focus on security research. And actually, something that I didn't point out is I started my career actually back in high school. I wasn't a very good student, but I was good with computers. So I hacked my school's database and changed my grades which my father, who was Department of Defense, (laughs) thought was really funny. But my mom was a teacher at that school. She didn't like that at all. So I got punished. But it really got me thinking about cybersecurity because I know that if I would have, you know, broken into the school and changed the grade on a piece of paper, I'd have a criminal record. But when I did it on computers in the 90s, it was viewed as like, oh, a little misfit. So um, that's actually how I got into it. (laughs) That is the dream story for a lot of people in college and high school. What have you? I've heard that so many times. Can you hack in and change a grade? Can you change my credit score? All of these these pleas to change something that is a rating or a ranking in a system. And you actually did it. Whoa. Not, you know, it wasn't a big deal at the time. It was just finding the database and playing around with it. But it really got me thinking about these things. So, of course, I don't advise going that route because... These things are illegal, but I do encourage, you know, the curious mind to play around. And, you know, hacking is sometimes viewed as something bad, but mm-hmm. hacking in its, you know, roots is something good. It's, it's trying to help through identifying weaknesses or shortcuts. So that I always encourage. Yeah. As far as we understand, it's formal inception, definitely that. But also it was used to secure and promote 
state interest. So with that comes a a good and a bad. And here's something I heard just the other day. It depends how you go about what you do that makes it everything that it is. So if your motive and your self-interest is leaning more towards what we would consider generically the ethically moral or not moral, that's what would yield the actual response towards what your actions are. So maybe you go at cybercrime or with the intent of just getting money, or you do it with the intent of making your life better, or perhaps you go at it with a full-blown ideology that will will definitely harm others. It, it really depends, right? I agree. You know, when you find a vulnerability, you can report it or you can exploit it, right? But I think there's also an element here of circumstances. And actually, this is really relevant to stuff that's happening around us now. And we've seen this in the past. When you had financial downturns and when you have conflict areas in the world, physical conflicts, you see a rise in cybercrime. And it's not necessarily those, you know, classic cyber criminals. That software developer in whatever it is, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, or Russia that lost their job because of stuff that's happening now or had to move countries still need to provide for their family. If they can't find a job, you know, they have to make ends meet. They might turn to doing some stuff that in computers that they know may be illegal, but hey, that's how I get food on the table. So there's also the circumstances that may drive people to certain directions. Yeah. And that's what we see often in the cybercrime world. The circumstances, I mean, we have known exploits that are exploited because someone wants a sum of money and that money is probably serving an interest somehow. And a lot of the folks that go there, much like yourself, they're not high performers in academia. They're not, you know, stable with these full-time jobs, a ton of security and have a path paved. A lot of folks that go to these, to cybercrime at least, don't really have a way of life that is conducive to peace in some respect or the other. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And you know what? I would I would also add that some of the cases that we see where, you know, people do these things, the criminal underground and the understanding of computer security, you know, to become a cyber criminal, the bar has been really lowered in the last, I'd say, decade or so. It's not like it was 20 years ago, you know, when I was a kid, uh, 20, 25 years ago, when I was a kid, uh, I used BBSs and I had to connect with people and learn from them. And you had to know somebody who knows somebody who will teach you. I mean, today, first of all, you have a lot of open source resources that you can just go right now on YouTube, find videos of of different attack techniques. But also you have in the cybercrime underground, you know, crime as a service. Somebody wants a phishing attack up and running. You don't need to know HTML or how to create a website and host it and so on. I mean, you could go on the criminal underground and buy a phishing kit and then hire somebody who will host it for you and then hire somebody who works with money mules. So almost uh, almost the entire life cycle of, of the scam or the attack can be outsourced, so to speak. And people with even a lower technical capabilities can still have these things up and running. I don't even doubt it. Not everyone can do all three of these things. One, gather data, two, commit the crime, and three, cash it out. It's it's impossible for one person, I think, in the cybercrime underground to do that. So someone will also always be just really good at gathering that data and selling it. And others are going to be fantastic at knowing how to commit a ton of crimes and others just know how to cash out. But all three of these people, maybe to generalize, 
are going to have tons of limitations. Even though the knowledge is somewhat democratized here, there are still limitations in geography, ability, and trust factor, right? Trust factor is big in this cybercrime underground. Yeah. And, you know, you, you bring up a very important point. You know, the guy who writes the code for a malware, for example, would probably not be the best person to try and social engineer somebody to take money out of their account, especially if the guy developing it is in, you know, Vietnam and the target is in Sweden. How are you going to speak Swedish to a local victim and try to persuade him to do some him or her to do something? So, yeah, there's definitely problems. Unfortunately, there are also very good solutions for them because there is cooperation. There is an information sharing. I mean, I've seen cyber criminals from countries which are in active war with each other collaborate because there's money at the end of the day. It's <laughs> that shared interest. And how often do we already see that across various militant actors within nation states? They do that from one nation state to another, collaborate just to create these almost transnational crime syndicates and pathways. Hard to believe that that can't translate into the digital realm. It just seems so natural. Yeah. And I think that's also something that we as defenders should look at. And I don't want to give too much kudos to the bad guys, but also learn from, you know, and then be better at data sharing, collaboration. You know, we all, I know, I'm, I'm from a vendor. We all come from some vendors and so on, but there still needs to be kind of this, if not united front, then at least an information sharing. And luckily we do have all kinds of groups who do that, but it should also expand beyond just the kind of technical groups of knowledge to do this. And, and we need to bring in more thoughts, ideas, approaches to battle these types of threats that we're seeing. I feel like sometimes the purely technical, who are very, very smart people, still think in their own box, even though they may not realize it. <laughs> Let's stay here for a bit. You said it would behoove cybercrime fighters to bring in different thoughts, perspectives, and ways of being. Can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll give you a classic example, right? If you take a computer that has a piece of malware on it and you give it to, let's say, an IT guy, a classically trained IT person, the first thing they'll probably do is shut it off or format it, you know, reboot everything and reinstall and bring it back to life. You bring it to somebody like a security researcher and he'll say, no, 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 don't format it. Uh, let it run a little bit. Maybe we can find out where that malware is communicating out to. Maybe I can find the command control server or the drop servers. You give it to an ex-cop, for example, and they'll say, wait, maybe there's forensics data here. Maybe I can find out the people who are behind this. How about looking into the files and so on? And what I realized uh, when teaching at Boston College cybersecurity is I teach the non-techies. And the ideas and approaches that they bring to some of the problems that I present to them really shine a light for me that I have almost a tunnel vision. I, you know, I may think that I know a lot about cybersecurity and, and, and how to approach different problems, but they're bringing things that I, I didn't even think about in ways to collect information or, or research and so on. So it really shows you how additional people from completely different areas of or different disciplines, how much they can actually add and nurture your own security understanding or approaches to, to investigating security incidents. This is so fascinating to hear. Can you give us an example? I'd like to know of someone who is not the classic engineering student or prone to being more logic-oriented 
perhaps more artistic, more creative. I'll leave it to you. Can you give us an example where we would see something we didn't expect? Uh, yeah, I can tell you. I'll give you a couple of examples of where I saw stuff that I didn't expect. As part of the course, the last portion of it, and we build it throughout the course, is to create an attack against a company or entity. Of course, the students are not allowed to run the attack because that's illegal, but they're, I, I want them to plan it like an attacker. The whole idea is you can't defend unless you know how to attack, so I want them to to plan an attack of some sort. And in many cases... Whenever you see one or two technical people, they're divided into groups. So the technical people kind of try to drive the group and they take it to the, let's create a phishing website. Let's create a malware approach. And I've seen several cases where you had a non-techie person lead the experiment or the attack. And for example, two years ago, I had one student who decided to create fake QR codes and put them as stickers in restaurants. He said, well, you know, I go to a lot of restaurants And I noticed that people just scan the QR codes without giving it a second thought, right? It's become second nature to us over COVID. So I created uh, QR codes, pasted them on top of tables, and then these codes would lead to uh, potentially a phishing website. That was one interesting approach. Another so one, smart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, you, I didn't even think about that as, as it wasn't even the way I described for them to do the attack, but it is those cases of people who bring something that I didn't even hint towards that I really like seeing. And another example is the year before that, I had two groups that were targeting financial institutions. And again, when I say targeting, it's just planning an attack and not, not actually releasing it. One was very technical, but the other one, you know, when we talk about security, we always talk about people, processes, technology, and we love focusing on the technology. This group decided to focus on the people. And they showed me how they identified an executive within that company that likes to bake gingerbread houses, found, <laughs> found all her information, including personal emails, mm. where she shops, pictures, everything. They found it just by using open source intelligence, OSINT, on the web. And all they had to do was create a very simple email uh, with an attached PDF that they weaponized. And, you know, hey, uh, we're having a gingerbread house contest. Print out this PDF, bring in the day off, and you'll get 50% off the entry. And that's it. The last example I'll give you is actually of a student. She was not from the cybersecurity IT world at all. And she blew me away with what she did with her open source intelligence exercise as well. That's one of the building blocks. She wasn't sure how to approach it, how to collect information about people. And, and she ended up sitting in um, a terminal in an airport in front of a airline attendant, and she saw his badge and the name, and she observed a little bit of how he acted and went online and created a report for me about this person as if I got it from his psychologist of 10 years, collected so much information from, you know, the Instagram and Facebook and posts, posting and groups that he was part of and comments that he left. And just gave me a complete psychological profile about a person she sat in front of, and all she saw was his name on a name tag, on a company name tag. Brilliant. So, yeah, it was really amazing. And I mean, she applied all kinds of other knowledge that she had to do this analysis of the person and who he is and what he's about and what are his likings and where are his weaknesses and, and so on. So it's really interesting to see these things coming from, you know, not the classically trained, which I think is... When I say not the classically trained, I mean, not not your typical, you know, hey, I was the firewall guy and now I'm the CISO kind of approach, which brings you kind of to like the larger picture. And I'm sorry for blabbering. So, for no, so this is this is your stage one and two. This is great stuff. Keep going. Which brings you to the other point that we've been talking about in the security industry for a while now, right? That 
a breach or a security incident is not an IT issue anymore. It used to be, but it's not. It's a business issue. And if it's a business issue, you're going to have multiple stakeholders. If you're, for example, the CISO or the CIO, which you're going to need to bring in to help you manage this crisis when it happens. And when that happens, you really want these people to have some idea of cybersecurity. You don't want to invent your language or, or the way that you talk about it or how you approach it. You know, when the screens show up a red skull and asking for a ransom, just to be very theatrical about it. You really want to have this done beforehand. So cybersecurity becoming multidisciplinary is kind of a, a must. It has to be. I love every example that you gave because social engineering is the oxygen for cybercrime. It absolutely is. All of what we're seeing as far as reported cybercrimes, I believe that even various FBI statistics will state this. A bunch of different organizations will state this. It accounts for a good number of the attacks. I would venture out to say 90% plus of cybercrime, yeah, general. And it's the premise of it. If you cannot form an emotional attachment to the action, then it's very hard to proceed forward with it because you have to get through human gates. You always have to get through human gates. And what I think is inherently fascinating and in everything that you said really enters at the end of, of what you said. Cyber risk is business risk. It goes deeper in such a way that we're asking executives to look at their own hygiene, to look at their own person and persona and how it plays out online because they are the ones that everyone's looking for. If not their executive assistant or someone, how susceptible are these people? And how much autonomy do they have over the data that they share? And do they understand the repercussions of it? Well, I, I can't say with confidence that a lot do, right? I'll tell you, when we did the exercises for companies and trained them, the mature organizations, and usually these are the, the larger ones because they can afford it also, approach cybersecurity just like they do a lot of other disasters. So it's part of the business continuity and disaster recovery plan because at the end of the day, if you have, for example, an on-prem server and your office catches fire, or if that server catches a malware and it doesn't, you can't use it anymore, you're still in the same situation of, okay, what do I do with it? And so we would see organizations include cybersecurity as part of their disaster recovery and business continuity plans. But I also wanted to touch about something that you said before about the human side. And while I agree with it, and I hope I'm not making too many people mad with this, I really don't like the approach of you can't fix stupid. It's always the human. It's we in the security industry need to make, you know, do a better job of supporting that user and giving them solutions and approaches that on the one hand won't hinder their day-to-day -day activity and make it impossible to work. And on the other hand, continue to protect them. So I really don't like when you see these types of presentations of it's always the human and we can't fix them and we'll always, yeah, but we need to do a better job of giving them something that will support them and help them. You know, you look you look at a car, for example. Sure, at the end of the day, it's always the human that crashes the car because of a mistake, but that's why we need to have better seatbelts and airbags and automatic system that will alert them. And, you know, you can't just say, okay, here's a car with no security in it and, and go, go drive it and you'll probably crash it, but you'll crash it anyway. No, we need to add capabilities that will make it safer for people to work. And this is the purpose of technology. 
Yep. The purpose of technology is not just to stop other people, but to enhance and improve the lives of others and to bolster security from the inside. It is really analogous to the way that we would probably see many nation states going about their internal security and maintenance of public infrastructure and the public happiness while also going about the interest of protecting their state through whatever means outside against other states. It's It's been a constant human balance from the beginning of civilization. Would not, again, get back to this, does not surprise me that as we apply this to corporations, even just small, medium-sized businesses that are pursuing cybersecurity, that they also have to play this intimate game of the whole and then the human and how to balance that. But I agree with you. I agree with you. The human is not inherently stupid. The human creates all great things. It's just, we must foster care, collaboration, and empathy throughout. But <laughs> getting angry here. So I'll, I'll mention one more thing that mm-hmm. kind of ticks me when I see it in some presentations or, or some talks. It's, we should also not, I know it's easy to do, but not latch to this, what I call the single point of failure fallacy. And I see this in a lot of breaches reports. You know, you see mm. these headlines, you know, uh, you know, company X got breached because of a phishing email. And company Y was breached because of a vulnerability that was exploited. Company Z was uh, breached because of compromised passwords that were found on the dark web. And, you know, it gives me a headache when I read these because if you know how an attack happens or how a breach happens, it's never a single point of failure. There's always multiple steps that the attackers take. Take any company that you can think of. Let's take one breach that everybody's familiar with, which is very old by now and not, not one of the recent ones, like the Target breach, for example, right? It's not just because the HVAC provider, the third-party provider got hacked. There were multiple security solutions in place, but the attackers bypassed all of them. And so when, when you hear these sentences, you know, you know what in sentence encompasses this thought? The attacker needs to be right just once. The defenders need to be right all the time. And it's just not true. You look at attacks, the attackers need to be right all the time. They need to successfully deploy a phishing attack, successfully collect passwords, successfully log in, evade security detection, traverse the network, privilege escalation, you know, identify the crown jewels, have a staging server, be able to encrypt the data, exfiltrate it out. And so there's so many places the attackers need to be right. And the defenders need to be right at least once in detecting or mitigating or preventing it. But saying that the attacker needs to be right once, that's not giving enough credit to the amount of work that goes into an actual breach. I wonder why then that myth exists. Why do people rely on that and share it so often? What is it about that myth that makes it so believable to people? My idea is it comes from mostly from the vendors, from us. You know, because it's very easy for a vendor to say, oh, you have a problem with phishing? I have a phishing solution for you. Here's here's one product. You need a and vendor B comes in. Oh, you have a, you know, a monitoring problem? Uh, no problem. Or uh, I have an IPS or IDS system here you have, uh, for detection. You know, you have whatever it is, endpoint problems? Sure, we have an endpoint solution. And what you end up with is if you see the statistics today, medium businesses have over 40 security solutions in place. Large businesses have way over that. And the question is with, with every device and every solution that we bring into the security operations center, are we adding fat or muscle? Are we giving them more capabilities or are we taking, you know, <laughs> the security analysts who are overworked 
uh, who are very tired and adding another screen to the already six screens that they're looking at and telling them, here's a new solution, you know, good luck integrating that. You know, I see these security analysts that came to the job very enthusiastic, wanting to do security, end up being integration engineers, just trying to take, oh, how do I take all my threat intelligence feed? And how do I make sure there are no false positives? And then I need to feed them to the firewall and also to the endpoint. And how do I correlate with the SIM and with my DLP and with my casket? They're just drowning in security solutions. And you know what? At the end of the day, I think that's part of the reason that we see burnout in this field. It's because there's so much work like that instead of the actual security work that you need to do oh wow but that's just the the the, uh, tool overhead operation maintenance all of this is becoming this sort of micro business inside of an organization i it's astounding so i'll ask this then based on your experience so far how would you describe the state of cybercrime threat intelligence there's a ton of tools ton of analytics not so much energy for analysis is what I'm hearing because it's going elsewhere. So what's the state of cybercrime threat intelligence in organizations today? It really depends also on the organizations themselves. On the one hand, their appetite, and on the other hand, they're also their capability to ingest, mm-hmm. or say, digest this information. Because getting a feed is not getting threat intelligence. And, you know, creating a feed, or as we joke about, like, include Google, is not threat intelligence. When you talk about threat intelligence, the three kind of core components of threat intelligence, and the reason I I call it an ART, ART for me is the acronym for actionable, reliable, and timely. The data has to be actionable. Otherwise, you know, why are you giving it to me if I can't do anything with it or it's not relevant? It has to be timely because why are you telling me about a thread that's in my network for three months now? I want to know when when it happened. So, And it has to be reliable because I don't want any false positives. I get enough information as it is. Don't add you know, stuff that will just make me work for, for nothing. And so it's easy for me to say that, you know, it's an art, actionable, reliable, and timely, but actually getting it to that point is not easy, especially when, you know, you have today dozens, if not hundreds of different feeds that you can ingest, but then what do you really do with it? And, you know, like you said, there's a lot of data analytics. I, I see a lot of data. I don't see enough of the analytics around it. <laughs> Mm. You know, looking at this risk trend, I call it a risk trend because more and more vendors are looking to quantify risks and sometimes in a generic fashion, other times with some ingenuity more specific, but they provide their own analytics to that end and they give a percentage or a score. And then we have security practitioners looking at different consoles with different percentages and different scores to tell them about the vulnerability of their assets or furthermore, to tell them about just what security is worth. And even that can get one's head spinning. So I venture out to say that the quote unquote analytics that are being provided as well are missing some key parts of analysis. I mean, everything's evolving. Luckily, it's all on a positive trend, but That's really what I meant by tons of analytics, not enough true analysis. I'll add to that point one more thing. I think one of the things that I love doing at Cato is because we also we do the networking and security. I love looking at the network, which is you know not my classic stuff. I used to do the security. There's a lot of visibility that is missed when you're not looking into everything that's happening on your network. Uh, Let me give you two examples, two kind of case studies. One of the things that I do is I generate a report. We actually had it internally and we decided to put it out there as well, where I just look at what happens on 
corporate networks. You know, we have over, what is it, 1,400 customers by now. So I just take all the network flows and I, I try to see, you know, what is happening? Let's, I want to see a visibility of what happens on the network because, you know, if I ask a CISO, hey, Mr. CISO, what does your network look like? I know what I'm going to get. I'm going to get this nice visual file and it's going to have all the servers and the routers and all the yeah. arrows, you know, well, everything will be aligned and it looks beautiful, but that's not how the attacker sees your network. You know, the attacker, they see that router that John once brought in a wireless router and hooked it in because I didn't give him a wireless router and it's still using default passwords and it's unpatched. Or they'll see this user that uh, Jane once opened for testing and it's a privileged user and Jane left the company already, but Nobody was aware of that user, so that user still exists. That's what they go for. So I'm looking at, at this these network flows, right? This is real data over a trillion network flows. And I generated a report of what are the top most used applications in corporate networks. And I had 1,200-something uh, applications in total. Now, the first top five or top 10, I would even say, were very boring. Amazon, Google, Microsoft, all the stuff you would expect. What I didn't expect is number 23 to be TikTok. And when I saw that, I was like, why is TikTok the 23rd most used application on corporate networks in 2021? Now, without even asking the question of, is TikTok safe or not? Because I know what the federal US federal government answer to that is. And I know what that answer is if, it, if I ask TikTok themselves. It's a question of visibility. Do you even see it? Do you even know that that is there? Because number... 200 and something was Tor nodes. Now you may say, oh, it's number 200. Yeah, but that's out of 1,200. It was way above some other le very legitimate applications that you would expect to see on corporate networks. So this lack of visibility into what's happening on the network could really help both with threat intelligence, but also with, you know, really preventative measures. And if it's okay, I'll go, I'll tell you about a second case study around that area. Yeah, yeah. So this one is pretty recent and came from uh, actually from a ransomware attack. We were approached by a company that got ransomed and I interviewed their IT department, IT and security department to understand what was going on. And it's really interesting. So I'm sitting there talking on the Zoom with them and they're telling me what happened. They said, first of all, it wasn't the first time they got ransomed. Okay, that's an interesting piece of evidence. So ransomed for the second time. Did you pay the first time? Yes, we did. Well, okay, so you're already marked as yeah. paying customers, so to speak. Okay, interesting. Next piece that they showed me and talked to me about is they said, you know, from the point of entry to the point that we got ransomed on the second time, it was minutes. The attackers weren't on our network for weeks or months like you read in the reports. They were on for minutes and they started ransoming everything. By the way, they ran the actual ransom during New Year's Eve just to make it that much more annoying for the support. Mm -hmm. So there was another interesting piece of evidence, but where it really tied it up for me was when they showed me the logs from some of their systems. And when they showed it to me, I immediately noticed that there are remote access attempts to different servers, and I pointed it out to them. And they said, yeah, Itai, we saw this. We know that's, that's what the attackers did, but notice this thing. And they pointed out to a specific line in the logs and said, here they're trying to do a remote access attempt to an exchange server that doesn't exist. No, said, hygiene. Why would they try to do a remote access to a server that they don't even know about? And that's where I understood what happened. And told them, okay, look, this group that targeted you based on some of the indicators that we see here, we know who they are. Here's what happened. They 
Actually, this is what is ransomware as a service. The previous group that already ransomed you, what they probably did is map out your network the way they see it, the real network, and they sold it to this group. How do I know that? Well, first of all, you said they were, you guys were attacked within minutes, right? They didn't need to do any discovery because the discovery was already there. The previous attackers sold all that information. So they created custom scripts that as soon as they were in your network, you know, they just started attacking you because they knew what your network looks like. But here's the catch. Between the time of the first attack and now, the company moved an exchange server away. The attackers didn't know about it. So of course, they tried to attack it with an automated script that was already pre-built. And that's a huge indicator. That's a very clear kind of network-based indicator. If somebody's trying to access a server on your system that's not doesn't exist or used to exist, then you know something bad is happening. Why somebody should trying to do that? Nobody in the company or your IT team should be doing that because you know it doesn't exist. Just like you know, sometimes you see the reverse of this, where organizations used fake accounts. You know, you create a user column, super admin user. I'm just exaggerating here, super admin user, and it has no authority to do anything and no access. But you monitor it, and you know that if somebody tries to guess its username and password then something bad is happening on your network because nobody should be using that user. That's a fake user. That's like a counterfeit or a fake money. So these indicators of, of what's happening on your network can really give you an early alert that something bad is happening. Sounds like security practitioners are often undermining how quickly and efficiently the cybercrime underground cooperates, collaborates, and works with one another to build their enterprise and to share <laughs> but it seems like sharing funds and sharing profit. Yeah, I mean, this whole notion, I mean, and again, ransomware as a service didn't invent this. We've seen these types of collaborations mm-hmm. and corporations before, but it's just taking it more to the extreme of like, hey, this company, first of all, they already paid, so they'll probably pay again. And we already did our job. So, you know, people tend to think, for example, about ransomware as a dual threat, right? You have to pay once in order for them to give you the decryption key so you can go back and work. And you have to pay them the second time for them not to leak their information on their paste site or the different leak sites on the dark web. Mm -hmm. But that's thinking like a defender. Attackers say, well, maybe there are more ways for me to monetize this opportunity. Okay, let's share or let's sell the infrastructure that I have identified or credentials that I've already stolen With other groups, they may be able to use it and perform their attacks. I'm already done, but that doesn't mean I can't further monetize on some of the stuff that's that's there. And that's called innovation. That's called human innovation. (laughs) It really is. Uh, How much money can I make? Can I make even more money? And how many paths to the money are there? Uh, One could be from the source, the organization we're going to profit from, but also within our own network. How can I contract, pass this work on and and push the profit forward, build that trust in those networks too. More businesses, more trust for them in their side of things. So I'll ask this, what are a few key pieces of actionable advice you'd give security practitioners to combat a lot of what we're seeing in the cybercrime underground and how it's evolving? A few things that come to mind are, first of all, increase your your visibility. I like to look at security events and security alerts, but there's a lot of things that will give you indications that something bad is happening from other sources like the one I mentioned before, which is, you know, the network. Look into the network, not just your your security tools. Stop thinking about attacks and security incidents as a set of siloed attacks or siloed events. 
An attack is a combination of, you know, whatever, however it started, a drive-by phishing and malware and evading detection. And, you know, if you think about it, I like to use the MITRE attack framework. The attacks are not columns. The attacks are horizontal. They go through different tactics. We're using multiple techniques in each one of them to reach the final goal. So we can't look at and say, if I just have an anti-phishing solution or if I just have a DLP solution, then I'm done. We have to have solutions that are able to look at the complete attack lifecycle, collaborate and share information in order to give you a much clearer picture. And of course, I think this kind of goes without saying a lot of security practitioners do this today is think like a cyber criminal. Hey, bring in that red team. I know sometimes they can be snobbish and annoying, (laughs) but bring them in to show you, you know, what a bad day might look like or how attackers would penetrate your network. Um, Mm. It'll really help you at the end of the day. Yeah, humanize the attackers. Yep. Totally thought. All right. Well, let's venture out a bit. One to five years from now, what do you think the cybercrime underground is going to look like? Well, if we're specifically talking about the cybercrime underground, it hasn't changed all that much, I'd say, in the last years, right? There's more offerings. There are more people and groups involved. But they're still selling products, selling services. You know, phishing attacks haven't changed all that much. Malware still still data, but they're still successful. So... We're going to see more of it. And by the way, we may see this done on different platforms. You know, it used to be in IRC channels, moved to the clear web. From there, it moved to the dark web. Now we see it a lot around P2P, like, you know, WhatsApp or Discord or or Telegram and, and other, you know, areas where attackers or, or criminals think they, that they can do their business more securely. Uh, we'll have to see what types of things they develop and come up with because I, I actually just just before starting this call, I was reading about how certain AI capabilities can be used or not can, but it was actually demoed, can be used in order to facilitate attacks much faster and more accurately. Oof, yeah. So some very interesting things happening in the GPT-3 world or the stuff OpenAI is doing. So... I'm not sure I'm looking forward to that, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but I think it's inevitable. Yeah. Faster, efficient, more collaborative crime is what I'm hearing. And that means we'll have to parallel that trend. Every every new digital realm, digital space that's built for collaboration must also be fertile ground for security and for security collaboration. That's one thing that I've heard you say a few times throughout this call that I really do hope those vendors that are listening in, even just security functions, build your peer networks as well and grow in knowledge and efficiency. Well, I like what you've said here. I thank you so much. I want one last question to ask before we end our call. What would you advise to your students? I know they're getting into the discipline now. First of all, don't be afraid of it. There's the technical wall, while it might be frightening, is not all that bad. And we need different perspectives. So when I say we need to, you know, kind of diversify the type of people and and disciplines that come in, I still would like to see some uh, cybersecurity training, but you shouldn't be afraid of it because there's a lot that you can contribute and bring from yourself. We need these different ways of thinking. We need people to come up with and show us that we're thinking within our own little boxes and world and, and show us that stuff. And You know, it's an awesome time to actually get into cybersecurity because just like I said that the bar has been lowered for the attackers, it has been lowered. And I say this as a positive 
for defenders as well. There are so many resources on YouTube. You can find, you know, courses. You can find people who just advertise free courses about anything from malware analysis to IT infrastructure management to programming to everything is out there. The knowledge is out there, which is amazing. So, you know, go out there and learn and do this stuff and, and play around with it. And don't be afraid to try things. Don't be afraid to ask people, even if they're, you know, kind of higher up in the security industry. I have yet to meet a cybersecurity person or manager that would not reply and try to help people, you know, gain knowledge. So don't be afraid and, and you know, jump into it. And I think it's it's a fascinating world and not just only interesting, but it's it's a must-know kind of discipline when we're thinking about where technology is going and, and how it is constantly expanding. You know, it was only 10 years ago that, you know, cars were not connected to the internet, so more or less. And I mean, now we're already thinking, oh, uh, do you think people will put stuff in their body and that would be connected to the internet? Of course, it's going to happen. And we're not too far from it. So the attack surface is growing for the attackers and we need people from all areas to help us secure it. Beautiful advice. Fantastic. Well, before we end here, I know that our listeners are going to be very interested in all that you do. Where is the best place for them to go to find your work and to find your updates? So you can see a lot of the stuff that I do actually on our net, on our website on CatoNetworks.com. I actually have a masterclass where I teach some of these things. These are free. You can just go in and watch all kinds of things from ransomware negotiation to open source intelligence to an interview with the CISO of Delta and, and hearing what she thinks is important. So there's stuff there. You can follow me on LinkedIn as well. And like I said, I'm always happy to talk and share knowledge and ideas. I see that. I, I'll join in on the masterclass. Absolutely. Especially for ransomware negotiation. Why not? Thank you. Thanks for that. And Thank you again for your time here today. This has been a very interesting conversation. We've had one before, and that was also just so enlightening. I really enjoyed it. Let's definitely keep in touch. And I also do want to thank all of the listeners today and any day that you're listening to this podcast. I hope you found all the information here helpful. And please feel free to engage with us, reach out, start a discussion. This is what podcasts are meant to do. You listen, you digest, you learn, and then we grow and collaborate together here as well. So thank you all and thank you, Atai. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks. And we'll catch you on the next episode.